Hi, I'm LaDonna Humphrey. And I'm Alicia Lockhart. Welcome to Deep Dark Secrets. Today we're going to share the story of yet another murder case that's connected to the death fetish community. It is the astounding murder of Elaine O'Hara from August 22nd, 2012. Elaine O'Hara was born on March 17th, 1976. As a child, she was already struggling a little bit. She was a victim of bullying at school. Her father said that she was a troubled teen and that she had many episodes of self-harm starting around the age of 14. She had regular hospitalizations for psychiatric care, and she was also diagnosed with depression and borderline personality disorder. So that's a lot that Elaine was dealing with already. Yeah, that's some heavy stuff for a teenager. Yeah, I already am like, oh, that's heavy. That's rough. So in addition to these mental things that she was going through, she also had asthma, diabetes, and even dyslexia. So definitely a lot going on physically, a lot going on mentally. I just, I feel for her already. That's sad. I'm just thinking about my own teenagers. That's a lot to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And as she grew, she did end up finding some meaningful work as a childcare assistant She also was working part-time as a news agent, and she got to the point where she was able to move out from her parents' place and get her own apartment. So things were looking up for Elaine. She was continuing her education. She was excited about becoming a Montessori teacher at some point, so she was taking night classes to accomplish that goal. Good for her. Yeah, yeah. As Elaine grew older... Her family members noticed that her emotional development kind of just stayed around the age of 15, even though she was aging. People that were close to Elaine said that she was extremely vulnerable and naive. It seems like she was independent enough that she could live alone in her apartment. She was 36 years old when things started to get very very dark and very interesting in her life. And so we're kind of coming in and looking at the snapshot of Elaine's life during year 36. And it's just notable that, you know, the people in her family felt that she was really easy to take advantage of. She was naive. Her sister had said that she was overly trusting of people and that she was like the kind of girl that would just walk up to a stranger and tell them her whole life story on the street. Have you ever met anyone like that, LaDonna? I have. And that never ends well. It doesn't. You hear stories about people who end up getting themselves into bad situations with the wrong kind of people because of that. Yeah, every once in a while you'll meet someone like that out in public and you're you're almost like looking around for their family or their caregiver because you're like, oh, I'm worried for them. And I feel like this is exactly the kind of person that Elaine was. It makes me worry for the rest of the story because I'm afraid that that was taken advantage of. I do feel that that's the case. Her family, they were encouraging of her being as independent as possible. They were proud of of her, that she had a job. And so they were just allowing her to be independent and live in her apartment. In addition to Elaine being naive, she also had some oscillating mood swings. She had really intense emotions. And so she would go through these periods of being very withdrawn and even suicidal. 
followed by periods of her being very expressive and very needy and clingy. And one of her friends said that she had to end the friendship with Elaine just because Elaine got to a point where she was just calling her constantly all day, tons of phone calls and text messages. And she said that being Elaine's friend was very overwhelming. So I'm just telling all these details so that our listeners get a very clear picture of what was going on for Elaine when death fetish started taking over her life. Yeah, it seems like her life was just overwhelming. Like maybe she wasn't even able to handle all her physical, mental, and emotional ailments, and it was just spilling out into everything. That's tough. Yeah. And Elaine was doing her best. She was seeing a therapist. She would see doctors regularly. Elaine did also keep a diary for therapeutic reasons, and she would write in her diary frequently. And so when she was 36, some of her entries looked a little bit like this. I have some quotes. So one entry says, Dear Diary, oh my God, I am angry and I'm tired. I am upset about everything going on in my head. I just don't know where I am anymore. It's not only in my head, it's everywhere, my emotions. So that's a a little snapshot of where Elaine was internally at this time in her life. That makes me sad, the excerpt that you read. That's sad. Yeah. So her friends and family said that underneath it all, that Elaine was just somebody who wanted to be loved. And her father said that despite her mental illness, that she had an incredible work ethic and that she was super passionate about children. She just loved children and she wanted to have her own children. This is who Elaine is to her friends and family. This is who she looks like to her community. That is not all there is to Elaine, though, because Elaine has this interest in BDSM. For anyone who isn't familiar with that acronym, BDSM stands for bondage, discipline, and sadomasochism. That took me by surprise. I didn't expect that out of Elaine. Yeah, it's interesting to hear because her friends and family really just speak of her as if she's this very innocent, very young person. And so it is, it's an interesting interest, but she was open with some people about her interest in BDSM. She even told some of her friends and family, I think she spoke to her father about it at one point. One time her brother, John O'Hara, had come over to her apartment and he was, you know, just looking around while they were visiting. And he noticed there was a notebook on the counter that had some login information written down on it for a website called FetLife. And next to the notebook, there were these two pictures of hunting knives. She had printed out some photographs of a Buck Special Knife 119 with a a 15.2 centimeter blade. And the other one was a Buck Special with a a Coca-Bola handle and a six-inch stainless steel blade. So these are very specific knives that she had kind of selected and and taken pictures of and printed out. Wow. I'm thinking of another episode that we recorded, Alicia, and we talked about how people involved in fetish, death fetish, could be anybody. They could be working with your children. And now it kind of seems as that is coming true in this story about Elaine. It's troubling me. Yeah. So she's spending her days taking care of toddlers. She's going to school to become 
a teacher for young children. And then when she's at home, she's on these fetish websites. And we can actually trace her involvement to these fetish websites all the way back to 2006, which is interesting because we know that her interest in this community did lead to her murder in 2012. So she had a full six years where this was part of her day-to-day life, where she was going on these websites, talking to people. And as I had said, her brother did find that login information, but he didn't really talk to her about it at that time. Her whole family would get like updates from her doctors and her therapists. And her doctors were saying that she was doing really well and that her medications had been reduced because she was doing so well. And the doctors were telling her family that she was managing her moods and her feelings really well. So I think nobody was crying at this time about this interest in FetLife.com. Well, I don't think her doctors probably knew about her secret life. Do you think? Well, no, but her brother that had seen the login information, he definitely could have said something to her. But I think that they decided because her doctors were reporting she was doing so well, they didn't think that they needed to be super worried about it at that time. Wow. I don't know. I, you know, you hate to victim shame the family, but it seems like that would have been concerning to the brother. But I guess I do understand if they thought she was doing well, you know, to kind of yeah. past that. And you know how some families are with sex. It's like an off limit. You know, you just don't go there in some families. You don't have conversations like that. So it's possible that her family was like that. Yeah, true. That's possible. Elaine's involvement in the fetish community spanned over several different websites. She also had an account on alt.com and her main username was helpmelearn36. So she's got this profile up on alt.com and she's labeled herself as a submissive and she's looking for people who label themselves as dominant to play with. She's actively looking for people to like meet up with in person. And on her profile, her interests are listed as being restrained and being tied up. Oh, Elaine, I'm just so shocked by this. <laughs> I, I really am. I don't mean to make light of it. It's just you think you know people and it's like she, well, she was living two different lives. Yeah. And then I feel like I might just be a little bit jaded from this last year of reading Death Fetish. But when I see that somebody's looking to be restrained and tied up in the bedroom, I'm like, oh, well, Maybe that's not so bad, but what we've talked about so much with a lot of these cases that we cover is that there's just this huge escalation for these fetishers. I think that's true of Elaine too. She started out just looking for somebody to do bondage things, but then as she continued to speak with people on these websites, other fetishers, it sort of escalated for her. So I'm going to read some of her profile. It says, hi, I hate these things. I think she means like typing about herself. I've been a sub on and off for a while. I've learned a lot, but I still have a lot to learn. My fetish is bondage. I love being in chains. I'm here to learn. I serve my master. Oh, 
Wow. When I read that, I'm like, I could see somebody who's really naive just wanting someone to teach them what to do like that, to to be subservient and just go along with somebody else's plan. That makes sense to me. That tracks. We've definitely read worse. Yeah. So reading Elaine's profile at first, I'm like, it doesn't make me bat an eyelash, but it's that escalation that gets you. So she has this other section called My Ideal Person, and she says that she's looking for someone who can train her to be the best submissive that she can be. She said the person she's looking for is honest, loyal, frank, trustworthy, possibly caring, as well as strict. And I'm also looking for someone who wants a 24-7 slave. Wow, that seems a little bit more intense to me. It's a little less innocent than the first thing that you described about Elaine's profile. This is getting pretty serious. There's also some categories at the bottom of her profile that show her interests. It's like little boxes you can check if you're interested in them. And so she had checked sensory deprivation, verbal humiliation, and knife play. Okay, that is intense. There it is. The other shoe just dropped. She's saying that she has these more extreme fetishes that she's interested in acting out here. When I think about this case in comparison to some of the other cases we've covered, like the case of Sharon Lapotka comes to mind where she also was on sites looking for somebody to to murder her. This feels different to me. Does it feel different to you too, LaDonna? Yeah, it, do- it does feel different to me because I don't think Elaine really had the capacity to really know or to understand what she was doing. And on the other side, she did have a personal interest in this and she was looking these things up without, you know, somebody telling her to do it. She was doing it on her own. She would go to a few other fetish websites as well. There was a site called bestgore.com that she would go to a lot. And some of her common search terms there were black hanging women, hanging, women hanging, women stabbing, stabbing 48 times, prostitute stabbing, stabbing, and one that was like a suicide reference, it said Swedish man committing suicide live on the internet. That is dark. Super dark, especially since we know she has suicidal ideation at times. So I'm wondering, is is Elaine, you know, at this time maybe thinking that she might commit suicide live on a webcam for people to watch. That's just so dark. Yeah, that's what it seems like. I'm concerned with the obsession that she has for stabbing. Yeah, that's so extreme. Not only is she at home looking up all these search terms, but Elaine starts to meet up with people that she's talking to on these sites. We learn from the police investigation of her murder that she actually met with several different men and she would get together with them for coffee. They would go back to her apartment and kind of talk about their fetishes to see if they were a good fit for one another. And it sounds like Elaine was a virgin for several years while she was meeting up with these other fetishers and that she wasn't really finding a good fit at first. 
But in 2007, Elaine did start talking to a man with the username Architect72. He called himself David, and he labeled himself a sadist. So they did meet up several times in person, her and this guy that she thought was named David. Spoiler alert, he is not actually named David. (laughs) Uh, Big surprise. I mean, the fact that she thought she was going to find somebody honest and trustworthy, I just, no, I feel bad for Elaine. This is just, it's heartbreaking to know that, she put herself in this position, but she believed that there would be some goodness that she could find within that community. That I think that's what makes me the saddest about the story. You see that naivety there. She was thinking that she was going to find a good connection. And in terms of longevity, she'd been talking to this Architect 72 guy for like a whole year. And so she ends up telling her father in 2008 that she's seeing a married architect from Fox Rock. She says to her dad, hey, dad, he ties me up and he masturbates over me, but we haven't had sex. Okay. I'm completely disgusted for her, but I'm really shocked that she had that conversation with her dad. Sometimes when people have that, you know, lower emotional development and they have mental health diagnoses, They sometimes do just have no filter. She probably just blurted a lot of different things out to her father when they were catching up with each other. But she shares this relationship with her father, and her father is just shocked. And at one point, Elaine admits to her father that she's been trying to talk this architect 72 guy into killing her and that the architect had said no, he refused to kill her. Oh, my God. Goodness. Do we know what her dad's reaction was to this? It almost sounds like conversations like these were par for the course with Elaine. It sounds like at the time he was concerned that what she was saying may not be real. And he kind of advised her to talk to her therapist about it. So he didn't know if she was like having some sort of delusion. It just sounded like a really weird story. And he he's quoted as saying that he just didn't believe that it was real. That's frightening. I would be incredibly concerned as a parent. This is really, really scary, dangerous stuff. And so, you know, I was hoping to hear that her dad was a little bit more concerned about it. But I also can see the other point of view where I didn't know Elaine personally, and and we didn't experience some of her mental health issues like her family did. So I'm sure it was hard to determine what was real and what wasn't. Yeah. And her father says that the next time they talked, he asked her about that connection. And she had told him that she had stopped talking to the married architect, that she wasn't seeing him anymore. So I think the family became not concerned anymore about that particular connection. And Elaine wasn't lying. She was telling the truth. Her and Architect 72 did stop talking. They stopped seeing each other for a few years. That connection ended in 2008, and it was rekindled in 2011. On March 25th, 2011, Elaine gets a text message from a number she doesn't know. And it's a a 083 number, and it just says that it's an old friend. And the message says, we used to play together and I miss it terribly. So this is the beginning of David, the architect 72, coming back into Elaine's life. He's got this new number. It's like an untraceable, kind of like a burner phone, I guess. And Elaine, she 
I think she's picking up what he's laying down. All he had to say was, we used to play together and I miss it terribly. And she responds immediately, I'm not into blood anymore. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's so that makes me wonder what happened. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If we could be a fly on the wall, something happened where she, you know, she had a strong response to that. She's letting him know that's not cool with her anymore. Definitely. I'm glad to see that she was standing up for herself. Seriously. I I wonder what he did or what happened between them. I guess we may never know. We don't know what caused them to kind of break up, but he comes back with this new number. He says that he wants to start over with her. And even though she says, I'm not into blood anymore, she goes ahead and lets this guy back into her life. There's many more texts that come after that. And she tells the texter that she's changed and that he can use her if he wants to, but that she's going to go ahead and use him back. I guess, you know, they're establishing the new rules of their connection this time around. And he tells her that that's fine and that he wants a key and the code for her apartment building because he likes the idea of laying in wait or, you know, like being in her apartment to surprise her when she comes home. Okay, that would be a deal breaker. All of this would be a deal breaker for me, right? (laughs) Seriously, knowing that somebody wanted to lay in wait for me? No, no, that's no, honey, find find yourself another man. There's other text messages where he's saying that he is going to try to keep her cuts and bruises in areas where her clothing will cover them up. So it's it's apparent at this point that not only are they meeting up again in person, but he has completely disregarded the thing she said in the beginning about how she's not into blood play anymore. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm understanding is that he's probably doing real things to hurt her and cut her and cause her to bleed. Yeah, she's got real cuts and bruises that they are discussing how to hide in these text messages. So not only is he pushing her boundaries, he's physically hurting her after she said she didn't want to do that anymore. And he's telling her, like, it's okay, we'll just, you know, we'll just put these cuts in places where people can't see them. Wow, he's got his own bag of issues. This is really heavy stuff. It's This is probably the most shocking case that we've come across in all of our research of fetishers here. Going back to those text message, Elaine asks him one day if it's okay for her to play with somebody else. I'm assuming she means sexually. And the man says that he doesn't mind that at all. He says, and this is a quote, the more male DNA and fingerprints in your flat, the better. So go ahead, get his prints on your kitchen knife. Wow. So he's not kidding though. I don't think that that's role play there. He's got some plans for Elaine. Absolutely. And it just, he gets more and more comfortable as the month goes on. There's another text that says, my urge to rape, stab, and kill is huge. You have to help me control or satisfy it. And she responds, control, sir, not satisfy. So she's telling him in a very submissive way over and over again, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be stabbed. I don't want to bleed. I don't want to satisfy your urge to rape, stab, and kill. You can tell just by that response that she's definitely trying to back out of this the best way she knows how. 
So this goes on for a while. Like we get to April and he sends a text saying, still dying to knife someone. I'm worried I might do it. And he tells her that he's going to find someone out walking on the street to knife. And he asks Elaine if she'll help him do this. And she says, no. Another message that he sends her just says, stab, 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 rape, kill. So he's just obsessed. And Elaine is like his secret diary. He could say how he really feels to Elaine. Absolutely. And I just have to say this again, and I'll probably say it in other episodes (laughs) about death fetish. But I just want to remind the listeners that these communities, they are adamant that this is just fantasy and that this is never carried over into reality. It's just a fantasy. It is very clear just from these text messages that that completely negates that entire scenario. This man is clearly trying to satisfy an urge that he has to kill women. And I just... Yeah, he's taking it into real life. He's talking about following women on the street. This lie that these communities are all about fantasy is just that. It's a lie. Mm -hmm. So he keeps texting Elaine and he says one day that he's going to take her out of her apartment in a suitcase, carry her off to the woods for fun and bury her. And Elaine just replies that she has marks on her body from where he cut her. It's so normal for him to be saying things like that. She doesn't even really have a reaction to it. She just keeps the conversation going about her wounds. Later in April, the texter tells her that there was a woman stabbed in Dublin, which is near them. He's saying that he's jealous because the man got away with it. And he says that he wishes that he could have been the one knifing that woman. And he says, I quote, it must have been the most fantastic feeling for him. Lucky guy. That's disgusting and very, very, very scary. And he goes on to say, I'm going to do it. You have to help me or it will be you. And so you keep looking through these messages and there's messages in there where Elaine is expressing her desire to have a baby. So they're like on different planets at some points in these conversations. But he does share this idea that he has. He says, how about we book a house showing with a real estate agent? And when she arrives, we can tie her up, torture her and slash her throat. After we're done murdering her, I'll go ahead and take you back to my apartment and then I'll impregnate you. Was this attractive to to Elaine or what was her response? You know, I don't see what her response was to this, but I can only assume that she continued to say no because the other requests that he had about her helping, you know, she had always said no to that. So even though she really did want a baby and he was offering to give that to her, I don't think that she agreed to do that. There are other messages, too, where he's talking to her about how she's been suicidal before, and he's pushing her. And he says, I quote, I can't see you as an old lady. If you do decide one day, you have to promise me I will send you off. And she says, I wanted to do it before, but you didn't make it easy. So she's referencing the time that she spoke of to her father. So she was telling the truth then. She did ask this man to kill her at one point, and he had said no. But now he's pushing for that. And he says back, I wasn't ready at short notice, but I am now with this untraceable phone. Wow. 
So it's kind of creepy. It's like he came back with this untraceable phone. It's like he's been thinking of this the whole time, it seems. I think he had plans for Elaine really early on because I think he knew he could take advantage of her. That was clear to him. And he was using Elaine to scratch an itch and he was just going to continue to escalate it. It's just laying out perfectly for him. It really is. And it just keeps getting more intense. So he's got this untraceable phone and he decides that this is not enough. He decides that all of their communication should be moved to untraceable phones. He gets Elaine a new phone. It's another untraceable phone. And he gives it to her and he instructs her to save his phone number as master and he saves her phone number as slave. And then from this point on, they start communicating through these basically burner phones as master and slave. And he thinks that he's got this in the bag then that, you know, no one will ever be able to find out what they were planning. I feel like (laughs) this is the beginning of the end of any good intention, quote unquote, that he had towards her. That should have been a red flag to Elaine, but I'm afraid that she probably didn't maybe see it that way. She probably didn't know at all why he was moving them over to this secret place to speak. But the messages just keep escalating from this point. He is degrading her. He's calling her old, fat, worthless. He keeps reminding her, hey, you're suicidal. You used to be suicidal. If you just let me stab you, I'd be doing you a favor. I can just put you to sleep. And Elaine is responding to these messages saying, stop, stop it. I wonder, is that stop contacting me or stop trying to talk about actually ending my life? I think that she was likely feeling pushed by him, pressured by him. And she was letting him know that that did not feel nice to her. But he just kept going. He said, I know you want it. Just 30 seconds to slip into oblivion. I have everything ready if it becomes too much. Just think, all your worries are gone. I can fit you in Thursday. Oh, here, let me just pencil you in and I can kill you on this day. Yeah, again, she says, stop. And she says, right now, I'm not that bad. I think meaning like her mental health is not bad. She's not suicidal at that time. Wow. So he's just walking her down the path that I think that he wanted from day one. He's found someone who will go along with this fetish with him. He feels comfortable. And I I feel like he's basically groomed and manipulated her through this whole entire process. It seems very clear to me that he's been walking her basically to her death this whole time. And when he switched over to that untraceable phone for her, that's when he knew he was really going to go hard on her. Even though Elaine tells David that she doesn't feel suicidal, when July of 2012 rolls around, Elaine starts to feel even more depressed and was then actually contemplating suicide. You know, she was saying one thing, but she was actually starting to feel another way. And I feel like he probably wore her down. That's exactly what I was going to say. I think that it was just this process for him to get her to that point. And so, you know, she's continuing to say no to him, but she had a moment of clarity, I feel, because rather than letting David kill her because she was so depressed, she decided to go to the hospital. She ends up spending over four weeks in the hospital until she was feeling better. They were helping her with the depression. She could cope a little bit more. The doctors actually even said 
she was doing better than they'd ever seen her. I wonder if she was not talking to him as much during that time in the hospital. I bet she couldn't. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that she probably didn't have access to that burner phone or any communication device. Typically, I I mean, my assumption is, is that she was in some sort of psychiatric ward to help deal with her mental health issues and her depression. And so I think it's pretty typical for them not to allow that kind of outside contact. So I'm sure that helped her. So the doctor's again telling her family, you know, she's doing better. She was talking in different kinds of terms about life. She was happy. She was planning for the future. She was doing things, engaging in life. And the night before Elaine was discharged from the hospital, which keep in mind, that's actually the night before her disappearance. She tells a nurse about a man who constantly comes to her apartment. And Elaine tells the nurse that she's pissed off about this man. Oh, she's got to be talking about David. That's exactly (laughs) who I think she's talking about. And I think it's the first time she's probably been able to tell someone how she really feels because he's been a nuisance. He's basically been begging to kill her. And I think she knows subconsciously that when she leaves the hospital, it's going to start up again. And I think there was some dread. I would venture to say that's why she told the nurse. She went on to tell the nurse you know, through this confession of sorts that she had met this man on the internet and she admitted that they had a mutual interest in bondage. She also said that he lived nearby and she actually passed his house every day. So that's creepy. She lives very close to the man who is wanting to kill her. And I think that that would have to add to your fear and depression and your and this overall really bad outlook that she had. I mean, don't you think? Yeah, he's super nearby and he has the keys to her apartment so he could show up at any moment, really. Well, yeah, and she told the nurse that. She said, you know, he he has this key to my apartment and he he's constantly coming in and the nurse is concerned and she suggests to Elaine that Elaine lets people at the apartment complex, the owners, the managers, know what's going on you know hey this is harassment it's not okay and elaine refused to do it because she told the nurse that this man had young children and she didn't want to get him in trouble i feel so bad for her you know she's so worried about what it would do to him she's not realizing this man is he's gonna kill her it makes me sad for her because she is trying to protect him in a way you know she's putting him first and herself second and that's just so dangerous so she tells the nurse she confides in the nurse and i think that was important in a healthy step but she became very upset while she was talking to the nurse about this and i think you know, as I imagine this conversation in, in my head between her and the nurse, I could see the nurse probably being shocked and continuing to prod Elaine for more information to help her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as they're discussing, Elaine becomes very tearful and she lifts up her shirt to show the nurse her stomach. And what the nurse discovers is that there were fresh cuts about three or four inches long right across her stomach. I just can't imagine how horrific that was for the nurse. And Elaine's telling her that this man liked to cut her during their sexual encounters. As crazy as it sounds, Elaine said she enjoyed the physical part of the relationship, but she didn't enjoy being hurt and that she was actually starting to become scared of this man. I think that goes back to what we said earlier about Elaine is that 
I don't think she really understood what she was getting into. That Yeah, even at that point, she had asked to experience some of those things with him, but she's got an intuition. It seems like even though she's naive, she's feeling scared of him. And so she is picking up on the fact that this guy is dangerous. Yeah. And that this was more than she had bargained for. And, you know, as she's admitting this to the nurse, the nurse says, Hey, you're playing a dangerous game, Elaine. I'm concerned. And she advises Elaine to keep notes of the meetings with David. She said, keep notes about his name, his address, every detail that you can think of in case something happens, which is really wise advice. And Elaine said she would do it. And she said, you know, the man I want you to know, the man I'm talking about, his name is David. And he goes by Architect 72. But the truth of the matter is, is that David this architect 72 is not who Elaine thinks he is. That was not his name. David architect 72. I think his email address was fetishboy at gmail.com. <laughs> That's a creepy email address. Yeah. <laughs> but in all seriousness, that that's not who he was. His real name was Graham Dwyer. And this Graham was born on September 13th in 1972 and he moved to Dublin in the early 1990s. And as a teenager, he was interested in music. Most teenagers are. He even played bass guitar. He went along with being in a band. In fact, the name of the band was called The Strange Ways. Kind of seems fitting as to what happens <laughs> in the future. But he was confident. He had confidence with girls his own age. And he was really popular with them, believe it or not. So he had a totally different teenage experience than Elaine did. He was just living it up in a band and having good luck with girls. And she's like in the psych ward at that age. Right. Completely different experiences. Completely different people. It seems to me that Graham used that to his advantage later when he met Elaine, because that's, I think, how he was able to take advantage of her, because he was used to being so popular with women. You know, he probably had some sort of charm about himself. You and I would even say that we've seen that ourselves in our investigation into the death fetish community. Some of these men can come off quite charming. They have some kind of artistic streak, and then they've channeled it into the direction of death fetish. Right. And so Graham was no different. And speaking of death fetish, the first mention of death fetish in Graham's life actually came in his college relationship with a woman named Emmer McShay. Graham was studying architecture in Dublin when he met Emmer, and they were together for a long time, from 1991 to 1996. And Graham ended up getting Emmer pregnant. They had a son together. And as their relationship became more serious, Graham had a secret that he wanted to reveal to Emmer. And that was a fetish. He wanted to talk to her about his death fetish. And he told her that he fantasized about stabbing a woman during sex. And he started bringing knives into their bedroom. Oh, I can't believe that. He waits till she's like pregnant and they have a kid together to drop this dark secret on her. But that's so typical of these fetishers. I mean, the more we learn, the more we see that this is usually how that goes down. And sadly, he would pretend to stab her while they had sex. 
And by 1996, Emmer had the good sense to say, I've had enough. She later says, you know, she was scared of his fetish. She was scared of his temper. And she left him and she took their son with her. Good for her. She she saw that and was like, nope, I'm going to make my exit. This is not safe. Exactly. And But Graham just moved on. He found another architecture student to date, and her name was Gemma Healy. He actually married Gemma. They got married in 2002, and in 2007, they moved to a place called Carrymount Close Fox Rock. Yeah, that's where he was living that was close to Elaine then because she was in Fox Rock too. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, while he was there, his architecture career took off and he became a full partner in his company. Things were going well for him. And Gemma thought Graham was spending his time away from home when he wasn't working, flying radio-controlled aircrafts or driving his collection of luxury cars. You know, she thought he had normal hobbies, worked hard, he played hard. But that's not what he was doing. When Graham was not with his wife or working, he was meeting women on dark fetish websites, and he was meeting them in person. So, I mean, you've got this charming, popular, successful man pursuing mentally ill Elaine. He knew, I think, probably from the word go with Elaine, what the outcome was going to be. I truly believe that all these years of this fetish that he had of wanting to stab someone, you know, kill them during this sexual encounter, he had finally found his victim. Uh, He was a predator. It just gives me chills to think about him finding Elaine sitting with her, talking to her and realizing like, oh, this person isn't all mentally here. This is the one I'm going to be able to, to do this to her. Well, it gets worse. While Graham and Elaine were meeting up for these knife torture sessions, these death fetish role-playing scenarios, Graham reports that he was actually also having 18 other women meet up with him for the same kind yeah, he was meeting with all these women he was a player he was a death fetish player how do you have time for that i've wondered that myself and he said that he had these ongoing fetish relationships with them and there's actually videos and text documents and all kinds of information that was recovered from his computer but get this There was even more than the 18 he admitted to. He was finding all of these women that were into this death fetish, role-playing, sexual, torture, stabbing scenarios. I mean, by the dozens. Graham was really, really busy. I wonder, too, if some of these people are probably a little self-conscious and maybe they don't want to exchange photos or meet up in person. I I wonder if he had like a corner on the market because he was a successful, financially well-off, fairly attractive man in this community of people who are kind of in the shadows, misfit. I think that you're right. I think that those attributes of Graham made it easier for him to gain the trust of these women. And I think they probably found it hard to believe that it was anything more than some fantasy. Because again, these websites that they're visiting say it's all fantasy. 
right? You take it to a whole mm-hmm. different level when you meet up with somebody. But I mean, I, th- I think that these women, for the most part, believed that, it, you know, that's as far as he was ever going to take it. But he was dangerous. And I hope that all of the women realize that they escaped a killer. They were very lucky. There was a document that was found on Graham's computer, and I guess he had written it in May of 2005. And the title was Jenny's First Rape. And this horrific document starts with Graham describing traveling to a place called Newcastle to see some sites and to look for, you know, architectural developments. He was looking at shopping centers and it talks about different areas that he was looking at for ideas for his projects. But he also says, and this is so creepy, that he went there to feed his lust. Ew. And he even goes on to describe how he looks like an ordinary person. He says, and I quote, no one would suspect what was on my mind. Rape. That is so creepy. It's like he he knows that he looks normal. He seems normal and that he can just kind of slip under the radar and do what he wants to these women. Absolutely. And he was taking advantage of that. He says in this document that he had packed an overnight bag that included chloroform, rope, and a hunting knife. He says that he found a bookshop several floors high and believed it would be a good place to find some quote-unquote, timid flower who wouldn't fight. So he even had a type that he was searching for in different kinds of places that he knew that he could find them, like a bookstore, for example, so he could take advantage of them. Yeah, he's a predator. So he ends up going to the top floor in the erotic fiction section, no less, and he found a woman who was reading a book, and he says... And I quote, I knew this girl was going to be my next victim. That gives me chills. It's like, this is a confession document, you think? That's what it feels like, for sure. I mean, because he goes on to write that he put his hands over her mouth and a knife to her throat, and he took her to his hotel room where he used chloroform on her just in case she might want to run. Graham said he put her in the bed and dressed her and tied a rope around her neck and arms so that, that if she were to struggle, she would strangle herself. When she woke up, he put a pillow over her head to muffle her cries. He said it was such a great feeling being in his room, quote unquote, knife in my hand. He's obsessed with knives. Afterwards, he said the woman's face was contorted with pain, fear, in rage. He writes, I smiled. How was it for you, baby? Ha ha ha. Oh, this makes I me mean, sick. This story makes me feel like we're in this inside the head of someone who is completely disturbed. I mean, he is. This is really, really dangerous, horrible stuff. I know you said it earlier, but this feels like a confession for sure. 
Yeah, he's even got a name there. So I wonder, is there a Jenny in Newcastle that had this encounter? Or did he just see somebody in the bookstore and fantasize about this? LaDonna and I have seen so many of these stories in the Death Fetish forums. And that's always the concern when you find them in there. Some of them seem like it's a confession. When you read about these fetishers that have gone out and have committed real crime and they've been, you know, arrested and convicted for it, that any of their stories or videos or anything that they've made in the fetish community has to be suspect at that point. Is this real? Are there other victims? I just don't think that's a huge leap. The fetishers would argue that, but it's not a huge leap. And, you know, there's just a very fine line between fantasy and reality Graham crossed that line. I think it's fair to say he was fully immersed in his fetish fantasy of stabbing a woman to death. He was thinking about it. He was trying to act it out. He was begging to do it. So I'm going to fast forward us back to August 22nd of 2012. You know, we talked about Elaine. She'd been in the hospital for four weeks. She was on suicide watch. And she wasn't having any contact with the outside world. And Graham could not stand it. All he could think about was killing her. He'd been begging her, please let me do this. And remember, she was telling him to stop. So this really hits a fever pitch because he's wanting to kill her. Elaine's starting to stand up for herself and feel better. And she's released from the hospital, told the nurse what's going on. You know, they've made a plan for her to take some precautions and I feel like she left that hospital confident and she's seen on the security footage from her apartment leaving her home with a different phone in her hand than her main phone this was yeah this is after right after she's released and it's her slave phone the one that grandma got a hold of her like the second she got home then Yeah, just I think he was relentless. And remember, they live really close to each other. So he may have just seen her coming home. As it turns out, someone in the community sees her at the cemetery. And she was visiting her mother's grave. And another person reports hearing a woman crying really loudly in the cemetery at that time. Oh. So something has happened with Elaine. Her emotional state is starting to take a nosedive since leaving the hospital and they end up finding Elaine's car nearby and it's near some cliffs and they think well given her recent suicidal hospital stay they think maybe she committed suicide they think that maybe she jumped off the cliff and that was an assumption for an entire year because nobody knew where Elaine was all signs pointed to that she had killed herself so this next part is disturbing, but I have to share it because this is what happened and how the story played out. So this whole year, we think that Elaine's killed herself, but a year and one month later, it was September 10th of 2013, a fisherman finds a bag that's floating in the water and they're curious to what this is. And usually the water there is pretty deep, but it had dried up enough and expose the things that would usually be underwater and so this bag had been submerged for a while and inside they found handcuffs clothing a ball gag restraints and leg restraints 
a big old bag full of stuff. Well, can you imagine finding something like that? I would immediately wonder if there's a murder victim nearby. Think about it. Those are, I mean, a ball gag and restraints. And handcuffs. Yeah, that's scary. So they alert police and that caused the police to go search the area. And that's where they recovered a leather mask, a knife, an inhaler, and a chain with a ring on it. The keychain that they recover at that same time actually had a loyalty card attached to it. And they discovered that that loyalty card was registered to Elaine. Ooh, so I'm sure that's got them second guessing themselves. Why would her keys be in a bag at the bottom of a body of water? If she had killed herself. They continued to look for things in and around the lake and they recovered two Nokia mobile phones, two mobile phone batteries, a pair of sunglasses, a pair of glasses, and the number on the frame of the glasses and the prescription match the records for Elaine's eyeglasses prescription. It starts to cause panic and they continue to search. And three days later in a wooded area in the foothills of the Dublin mountains, a dog trainer happens to be out walking her dogs and they keep running off into the woods and returning to the trainer with bones. They have bones with them. And at first she thinks that they're animal bones But the dog would go and get more bones and bring them back. And, you know, this continued, this back and forth, until finally the dog comes back with bones that have clothes attached to it. So the dog owner calls the landowner and they search the area together. And that's where they found a human rib cage, a jawbone, and other bones. They call the police and... Sadly, it was Elaine's body that was identified through dental records, and they only ever found 65% of her skeleton. It's it's sad. She'd been out there for a whole year. Yeah, absolutely. And it's mind-boggling because the evidence that was all bagged up in the lake and her body showed up within three days of each other. And And they're like in totally different places. That just seems like meant to be. I think that was God. I think that's an act of, hey, let's put the pieces of this puzzle together. And, you know, thankfully they were able to recover Elaine. And nobody really thought that that would ever happen because they believed that she had committed suicide by jumping off those cliffs. So, I mean, just a really, really tragic story. That is so sad. And the police decide to go back at that time with all this new evidence and try to figure out what was Elaine doing in that wooded area? Why were her keys in a bag with all this restraints and masks and handcuffs? So they go ahead and start looking into Elaine's life more closely. It sounds like they didn't really do a lot of investigating because they had just thought it was a suicide. But they finally did go look through her computer and her browsing history. And they found the conversations with Architect 72 immediately. And they were able to pretty quickly find that email address associated with his fetish account. So they linked that fetish boy email address to Graham Dwyer within a matter of days after discovering her computer history. And they were able to do the detective work they needed to to link him to some of those items that were in the bags. One thing that I think is incredible about this case is that 
Graham had taken the master and slave phones and he had taken the batteries out of them and he had thrown the batteries in a different place than the phones. And somehow they were able to recover both phone batteries, both phones, and like put them back together. And even though they had been like underwater for a year, they worked and they were able to load up the phone and look at some of the messages. Wow. Now that is amazing. It's super amazing. And it just goes back to like you were saying, it feels like an act of God. It feels like there was this moment where the universe was conspiring through all these unlikely things that caused Graham to get arrested finally. The universe was up to something for sure. (laughs) And he, when he was taken in, when he was arrested, he at first denied knowing Elaine, but they even had security footage of him walking into her apartment because he went there so often. He really couldn't say that he didn't know her. They had him on video. I don't think Graham was as smart as Graham thought that he was. He was arrogant and he got sloppy. Yeah, he probably thought for that good year, though, that he had gotten away with it. And I'm so glad that that wasn't the case. When they went through his computer, because they had gone through Elaine's computer to discover him, but they decided to go ahead and go through his computer, too, and... It just gets worse. They ended up finding a bunch of homemade sex videos from his laptop where he had been filming the torture sessions with Elaine. And you can actually see and hear Elaine screaming and crying as she's being stabbed. And it really doesn't look like she's enjoying herself in these videos. In one of them, she is screaming, please stop. That's really heartbreaking. It's super heartbreaking. And the police were able to use those videos at the trial, though. And so it really, it did help to have that evidence. Their computers tell this story that they both wanted this, but there's video footage of her really in distress and can see that she's not enjoying it. She's begging for it to stop. That makes me really sad. It goes back to everything that we said about Elaine. She just didn't really understand I don't think what she was getting into. And it's sad to me that she stumbled on someone like Graham Dwyer. Even in the trial that they had, Graham's defense attorney was acting just like the fetishers in the forums. His defense attorney was saying, oh, this is just fantasy. These texts and videos are just fantasy. There's no evidence to tie Graham to Elaine's physical body. You should just overlook these messages. Because they just had a fantasy relationship. Oh, that's typical. Was he a fetisher too? (laughs) Potentially. (laughs) It's so obvious that this woman was taken advantage of and still have somebody saying, it's just a fantasy. It's harmless. Tell Elaine's family that. Yeah, Elaine's family and the prosecutor, they had a different viewpoint. And they were positive that Graham had used Elaine's mental state, her low self-esteem, her mental health issues, just took advantage of her, manipulated her. And they said that it was clear through all of the evidence that they had, that he really had a detailed plan and he had been executing this plan for a long span of time. He knew that he was going to get away with this murder. Wow, that's sad. I'm not entirely shocked, though. The way he was begging her and was relentless about it, it was pretty clear that he was 
going to stop at nothing until he got his way. This had been going on for years with them, even though they took a break and reunited. It sounds like he took that break so that he could prepare to murder her. It seemed like that was the plan the whole time. Uh, Yeah, for sure. I think the way he badgered her, begging her to let him kill her, I think that all signs pointed to this was always going to be the end result. It's what he wanted. Seems very cut and dry to me. And luckily, the jury felt that way too. And he he was convicted. Very strong verdict. Everyone agreed that he was guilty and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. Good. I mean, that's where he needs to be. Absolutely. I definitely think this is one of the scariest cases that we've found. I cannot stress enough that These people on these forums are saying that this is fantasy, but it isn't fantasy for some people. You know, it ended in the real life murder of Elaine. So anyone that is on these fetish forums right now thinking that what they're doing is innocent and harmless, well, that's not the case. Even if people think that it's harmless when they start communicating with one another, it can escalate. It can change as time goes on. Absolutely. And it makes you wonder, were there other victims? Yeah, he was working those websites hard. He had almost 20 different people that he admitted to meeting up with and talking with. And there were videos of other women on his computer. So it's really surprising to me that they didn't go full force there and try to figure out if there were were more people that he may have harmed. Because I don't see any other convictions or any other charges added to him. Is he still alive in prison? Yes, he is. We might ought to reach out to him. He's trained to appeal. Well, maybe that'll be our next investigative project. Try to communicate with Graham to see if there were other victims. That's a great idea. You have a background of, you know, writing to inmates and getting them to respond. So that's a great thing to add to the to-do list for this season. I will put it on my list. Graham, I'm coming for you. He might have some interesting things to say. It sounds like from what I can see recently that he wants to get out of prison. He thinks of himself as an innocent person that doesn't deserve to be in jail. So that's, I'm sure you'll have some interesting back and forth with him if he is willing to communicate. Well, we'll see. That may be an entirely different episode or maybe even its own season. So everybody will have to stay tuned. We'll keep everyone updated on that if we hear back from him. I just want to take a moment to say thank you, everyone, for hanging in there with us for this story. It was an intense and long tale, but it needed to be told. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's a sad story, and I do feel sad for Elaine and her family. I do too, and I think that a big part of why we are doing this season of this podcast is just to make people aware that there are thousands of fetishers on the forums even today, right now, having these kinds of interactions and conversations with each other. And so we're asking for people to join us in our fight to take down these websites. And we would love for you to go to our website, which is deepdarksecretspodcast.com, to check in with our latest efforts in taking these websites down and getting laws changed about death fetish in the United States. So go check out our website to see the latest for what we're doing in that mission and join us. Yes, please do, because we can't do it without you. It, It takes a community to stand up and say no more. 
Thank you so much for listening today and join us next week as we expose the true identity of another death fetish producer. Farewell for now, friends, and remember to keep your lights on. For exclusive content from this episode and all other episodes, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash deep dark secrets. Sign up and you'll be able to see some visuals that accompany each episode.